Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and World Affairs podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Jeff Gordon. Today I'm talking to Thomas Field Jr. about his book, From Development to Dictatorship, Bolivia and the Alliance for Progress in the Kennedy Era, published by Cornell University Press in 2014. Uh, How do ideologies of development shape the threat perceptions of U.S. foreign policymakers and the political and military leaders of developing countries? What is the relationship between economic development, democracy, and military coups? And how does U.S. foreign aid affect political stability in recipient countries? These are some of the broader questions uh, addressed in historian Thomas Field's fantastic book, uh, From Development to Dictatorship. The book focuses on the relationship between the Kennedy administration and the Bolivian government headed by Victor Paz Ascensoro, a former hero of the Bolivian revolution, as it attempted to generate economic development and build a centralized state in the vast landlocked geographically and ethnically diverse country. Field shows how U.S. support for economic restructuring in the mining sector created clashes between the government and labor unions that undermine Paz's legitimacy, and how the Paz government's reliance on the military to build infrastructure and execute development programs in the countryside, a strategy that U.S. policymakers supported wholeheartedly, increased the political profile of the military and made a military coup increasingly likely. The book ends with Paz's overthrow in a coup in 1964 and his flight to Peru. Uh, Thomas Field Jr. is an associate professor of global security and intelligence at Emory Riddle University in Prescott, Arizona. He holds a master's degree from the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and a PhD in international history from the London School of Economics. Most recently, he co-edited a volume called Latin America's Cold War, which examines how the Cold War international system interacted with regional and national political dynamics, and which was also the subject of a New Books Network interview. Hello, Thomas. How are you? Good, good, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Okay, Thomas. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, when did you become interested in studying Latin American and Cold War history, and how did you wind up studying Bolivia? So, <clears throat> it's a great question. I I, I was interested in um, in in Cold War coups uh, from the first time I visited Latin America as a, as an undergraduate student on a study abroad. Um, and I really didn't know much about, uh, well, Latin America in general, and, and much less uh, about U.S. involvement in Latin America. And I was in Chile, actually, it was my first uh, major trip to Latin America. And, uh, and so when I went to grad school, I wanted to learn more about uh, the possible U.S. role in uh, different events. Uh, I had, a, had, a, had a, a mentor who I was working on my master's thesis with, and uh, she, uh, she had just uh, read a. Uh, she just read an article comparing the the Bolivian Revolution with the Guatemalan Revolution, and uh, kind of comparing how the United States treated the two very differently, um, opposing the Guatemalan Revolution, overthrowing it, and then actually supporting the Bolivian Revolution and giving it lots of aid. Uh, so the Bolivian case was so poorly known and, and, and studied and understood. I noticed that it was sort of missing from a number of major works, fantastic works about 
uh, the U.S. and Latin America, uh, including you know Stephen Rabe's uh, book on Kennedy and also Eisenhower before that. Um, and so I eventually decided to to go full into the Bolivian case and sort of uh, dig down. I actually at first thought I would hopefully find you know just for the sake of the just for the sake of the forensic investigation you know that I would find some evidence of maybe U.S. involvement in the coup there uh, that brought an end to civilian rule and and the beginning of Cold War dictatorships in 64. But I actually found the opposite, that the U.S. government was was, uh, very much involved in in the civilian um, government there, uh, the MNR government, the revolutionary government. Uh, And that actually led to, I think, an even more interesting set of of, um, conclusions and and lessons there. So um, I I got a chance to go back to Latin America, back to the Andes, uh, not to study Chile now, which is actually a very well-studied case, but to study uh, Bolivia and learn a lot about its history and and culture and society. I was there for many years. I was there for about three years in total. I mean, I've since gone back many times. um, And I think it takes a while to kind of get to know Bolivia. Um, At least that's what people have told me. And uh, that was my experience as well. Well, there's a lot of it to get to know. It's a, a massive country, very uh, uh, geographically differentiated, different. Um, um, you have the, the mountainous regions, you have the lowland regions, more Amazonian areas. Um, uh, it's a highly uh, uh, diverse country in a lot of ways. So it's uh, understandable that it would take a long time and a, and a lot of on the ground uh, experience to really understand the different dynamics at work there. Mm-hmm. Um, you not only do uh, you not only did uh, extensive archival research in both the U.S. and Bolivia for the project, but you also interviewed some of the protagonists uh, and even their children uh, uh, for your book. Describe the sources you drew on for this project and your process of finding them. Right. Um, well, to, to go back to the first part of the of the source base you mentioned, um, uh, I'll, I guess I'll start with the um, the U.S. Uh, uh, documents that I was able to to access. Um, a lot of the the documents for the Kennedy period uh, had actually they, they they had been relatively slow in the in the declassification process in the 1990s. Um, and around the early aughts, uh, things began. There was some leadership changes at the Kennedy Library, and there began to be a little bit more movement around the 40 year period. So 19 uh, sorry uh, 2001 to 2000 would have been the 40-year period of Kennedy's um, administration. So there was a lot of new new documents that had never been uh, fully uh, declassified. And, and by the time I finished research for the book around 2008 or 2009, um, you know, I was able to get basically every White House document uh, declassified, including all the sort of, you know, even every little word that sometimes they were holding back. And eventually everything was declassified. It was a very opportune moment for U.S. documents um, Bolivian documents also uh, was somewhat serendipitous um, in that the presidential, uh, you know, the 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 the, the analogous uh, collection in Bolivia would be the presidential collection at the National Archives in Sucre, uh, and they had just made available presidential collection for much of the Cold War period at that time. Uh, they had actually found a lot of the documents in the rafters uh, in the presidential palace uh, around two thousand. Um, uh, five and six, I believe, is what they told me, and that they had sort of gone through and cleaned them up and made them available, uh, which was a, which was a huge score. I really uh, learned a lot about b- the interworkings of the Bolivian government uh, through those documents. Um, but you know, th- there's a lot more you can learn a lot of times from uh, interviews, particularly in Bolivia. 
uh, and a lot of people were still around. A lot of the major actors in the early 60s were fairly young, uh, people who had authored uh, the revolution in 52, and many of the military officers who had cut their teeth in the revolutionary period in the 1950s were still uh, you know, in their 40s in the early 1960s. Uh, which meant that I was still able to interview many of them that were still around, or at least some of their uh, colleagues and junior officers. So I was able to talk to, uh, you know, the families of some of the military officers. I was able to talk to some of the student leaders who would, who, who were involved there, some of the workers, some of the trade union leaders as well, some and even some of uh, Pasas and Soto's cabinet uh, members, some of his, you know, his private secretary and his cabinet members, and they were able to confirm a lot of the you know, sort of the things that you hear and some of the things that aren't in the documents. On the U.S. side, however, I think that was, uh, for, for, for many people, I think uh, some of the most striking uh, information in the book comes from my um, interviews with the um, with then-Ambassador uh, Douglas Henderson uh, and also the CIA station chief at the time, Larry Sternfield, uh, who had been interviewed once before, um, giving his name to an author who then, uh, but then I, I got his name through uh, military attaché Edward Fox, who's kind of a famous um, American who, who in Bolivia anyway, the 50s and 60s, he was well known as sort of the Soro of the Andes, the Fox of the Andes, actually called the godfather of the Bolivian Air Force at one point, which was created while he was there in Cochabamba in the 1950s uh, with Rene Barrientos, the Air Force chief. So these people were, were you know, these people were, were intimately involved with Bolivian politics, Bolivian military um Developments and and you know U.S. embassy politics throughout the 1950s and 60s, and they were they, you know they they gave me hours and hours of interviews uh, in person. Usually, I would travel to go interview them just uh, to try to get to know them know them a little bit better. And uh, several of them actually read the manuscript before it went to press, just to you know just to kind of double check that I'd gotten some of their quotes right and things like that. But uh, um, yeah, those interviews were I think quite especially particularly the CIA station chief who was able to. Um, sort of offer, he didn't reveal any new classified information, but he was able to give more context to uh, to information that I had found uh, in the declassified record. It seems like uh, uh, you were covering events that were in a historical sweet spot um, uh, long enough ago that more documents are, are declassified, but uh, not so long ago that uh, all of the people uh, uh, who were involved had passed away, so you could actually uh, interview um, um, a number of the people involved in in these political crises. Um, so, before we get into the history that you cover in the book, I want to take a step back and talk more generally about Bolivia's society, geography, and history for listeners who aren't familiar with it. Um, conflicts over natural resources and land use have long been at the center of Bolivian politics, uh, and conflicts over mining are uh, um, at the center of your narrative. Uh, what are some of the country's major mineral and agricultural exports? Oh, when, when, when people think of Bolivian mining, uh, a lot of them might uh, think of the silver mines of Potosí, which bankrolled the Spanish Empire for years um, prior to, the, to, to independence. Um, the the post independence period uh, is better known for uh, in terms of minerals and uh, better known for tin. Uh, Bolivia was one of uh, the top three tin producers throughout much of the twentieth century. Uh, more recently, Bolivia has developed uh, oil and gas uh, um, reserves. Uh, well, beginning in the sixties, but but uh, particularly taking off over the last twenty or thirty years, gas reserves have become a major driver of Bolivian 
uh, income. Um, there were other minerals as well in Bolivia, wolfram, gold, um, uh, iron. Uh, there's a budding steel industry that was begun under the military in the 70s. Um, in terms of agriculture, Bolivia has a soy industry that's fairly large now, some, some, some cotton um, as well. Um, even olive oil. Uh, the, the, the agribusiness is something that is a little bit newer in, in terms of the you know late 70s and 80s uh, um, that was developed in, in large part as the, as the original agrarian reform of 53 began to uh, turn more and more toward agribusiness in the 70s and 80s under the, you know, under the government of General Banser, who was from the uh, lowlands. Um, Bolivia is a very, very, very complex place. I think. I mean, it's sort of you didn't specifically ask about uh, its 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 demographics or its geography, but I think uh, you kind of want to give some background to your readers. It is an Andean country. It's uh, you know, it's a, it's also a mining country. Uh, so it's uh, a lot of a lot of workers in Bolivia uh, live in the highlands, um, both for agricultural and for uh, reasons of employment in the mines. Um, it's a country that has kind of three major uh, geographical regions: <clears throat> the uh, high plateau or the altiplano, and then the va- and then the valleys, uh, which uh, you know sort of cascade down toward the lowlands, which uh, basically the the, the Amazon. Um, and uh, some of the demographic groups kind of follow along these these geographic um, regions. You have a, a significant Aymara population, particularly in the high plateau, the northern. Bolivian high plateau around La Paz, the capital, um, maybe around 20% of the population self-identifies as, as Aymara, um, maybe a bit less. Uh, the self-identification of indigenous peoples actually goes up and down quite, quite. Um, it, it actually fluctuates a lot more than, than I think someone who's not from South America would, would expect. Um, <clears throat> the, the, next lar- uh, the, the, the largest uh, group is actually uh, Quechua-speaking uh, Bolivians. Um, and they live in, in the valleys and some of the lower uh, high plateaus. Uh, there's actually 26, I believe, uh, although uh, someone who knows more about contemporary classifications might might correct me, but uh, different indigenous groups. Uh, some of the other large lowland groups are the Mojos, the Chiquitanos, uh, and the Guarani. Uh, Guarani are the major um, indigenous group in Paraguay. So it's, it's a complex place. Uh, many Bolivians also don't speak any indigenous language, uh, even if some identify as, as, you know, sort of as being indigenous and sort of having indigenous heritage. Um, the land reform of 53 is the last thing I should probably bring up before, before you ask other questions, which is uh, it's important to note that uh, while agriculture uh, is the seat of ongoing tensions, particularly since the 1970s and 80s rise of agribusiness, as I mentioned, the agrarian reform of '53 was amongst was it really was among it may have been yeah it was among the most radical land reforms uh, in 20th century Latin America in that there was no compensation given to the landlords it was it was it was essentially total uh, and and complete uh, the the peasants uh, uh, took over the land they were given the land and, and weapons to guard the land with it was um, it was it was similarly radical to the Cardenas land reforms in the 30s in Mexico but actually more thoroughgoing. Uh, in terms of, um, if not nationwide, at least through almost all of the major population areas of the of the countryside, from the Alti, from the northern and the southern Altiplano, and all through the valleys. Uh, so, very radical land reform. 
and the creation of peasant unions as well in 53, which became a a major um, political factor going forward. Right. And um, the 1953 uh, land reform was a consequence of the 1952 Bolivian Revolution, which I also wanted to ask uh, a little bit about, um, because that's a major part of the backstory. And um, uh, actors in your book are all trying to frame and interpret uh, uh, what the revolution was about, uh, in, in order to make a compelling case for why they should be in power or be able to, uh, execute the policies that they wanted to enact. Um, uh, what were the, the causes of the revolution? Who were its major actors and how did its legacy shape subsequent political conflicts? I know that's a big question, yeah, but okay. kind of <laughs> synopsis, uh, of, of, of what the major events were of, of the Bolivian revolution would be helpful. No, I mean, you, you put it well, it's, it's, uh, one of the, one of the things that, uh, took me a few months uh, of being in Bolivia to kind of realize is that, um, unlike in, uh, unlike, um, in Guatemala, um, you know, unlike in, in, in Brazil and Chile, where you had revolutionary processes that were explicitly reversed um, by, uh, you know, an, an explicit counter-revolutionary uh, period, you know, the revolution in Bolivia was never explicitly uh, denounced by, by its successors. Um, you know, to, 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 to refer to uh, military governments in the late 60s and 70s as counter-revolutionary uh, it's possible. It's an argument you make. You you have to kind of put it together because they did not uh, refer to themselves as kind of revolutionary. So, um, and and the principal um, gain of the revolution that was never reversed is the, is, is the land reform, um, uh, which which came in in fifty three. But it was a much more th- it was a very thoroughgoing re- thoroughgoing revolution. Um, it's sometimes you know sort of like the forgotten revolution, uh, partly because of Bolivia's size. It's uh, sort of uh, remoteness, uh, but also because of the, um, the, the the way it moderated quite early. Uh, it made peace with the United States very early, uh, and then um, began to, as you are, as you put it, you know, begin it began to be shaped in um, in, in not sort of non revolutionary terms uh, in the late sixties and seventies. But that heritage is still there uh, to this day. You know, there really isn't a counter revolutionary. Uh, force arguing that the gains of the 52 revolution should be reversed. They're really, you know, the, the, the old oligarchy uh, who wants to get their land back or get their minds back uh, really has not, uh, never had any sort of um, postscript uh, after the 52 revolution. So what was the 52 revolution? Um, so the 52 revolution, which was led by a kind of uh, very interesting mixture of nationalist uh, party members, uh, sort of, petite bourgeois sort of um, uh, nationalist who had actually uh, in many cases been sympathetic to the German cause in World War II, um, but had since um, you know, made, their, made their sort of personal and political peace with the Anglo-American world um, and, and had begun to uh, pitch themselves uh, as developmentalists, basically non-communist uh, developmentalist statists. Um, and they had, and they had uh, in the 40s, they had actually uh, forged a an alliance of convenience with uh, with the Trotskyist groups in Bolivia, which, uh, although very small in number, uh, had always been quite um, quite good at uh, getting their uh, sort of their, their, their pr- pr- provocative sort of style of, of winning uh, sympathizers in the trade unions. In the forties, 
Um, in the 40s, when the communists were, were allied with the Anglo-Americans in their war with the Soviets against the Nazis, um, the, the communists had a hard time, like they did in many other places. And so the nationalists actually did quite well in the 40s, along with the Trots, to gain the support of many mine workers. Um, and, when, and when the oligarchy continued to uh, sort of control Bolivia, Bolivia was a country that didn't have universal suffrage until 1956. Um, I mean, the, the universal suffrage was passed in 52, but the first election with universal suffrage wasn't until 1956. So, um, you know, the, the, the Indians were not allowed to vote, essentially, it, 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 to, put, to, to, to put it simply. Um, and so the MNR, which was the Nationalist Party, and the Trots, they had a sort of political program that would, would try to bring the masses into uh, political life under the banner of uh, land to the Indians and, my, and the mines to the state uh, to try to, uh, you know, break the back of oligarchic landowner power and to break the back of uh, oligarchic um, um, mine industry uh, power. They describe these, these forces as basically anti-national forces. So some very strong nationalist rhetoric led to the 52 revolution. Um, uh, basically, the nationalist uh, candidate, Victor Passes and Soto, won uh, an election with very limited suffrage, like 50,000 votes in a country of, I think at that time, about 3 million people. Um, and he, But he still won. He won because I think, you know, in the cities, people after the Chaco War and after the sort of frustrations of the 40s uh, had decided that, they, that Bolivia needed reform and needed progress. And uh, he was not allowed to take office. Uh, there was a, a coup at the last minute, to sort of right before the inauguration, to ensure that um, that he would not take office and the military, you know, would not allow the MNR to take office. And the MNR cadres, uh, along with some Trotskyist miners, and, um, you know, there was actually an attempted uh, sort of coup at one um, the, uh, police uh, commander was going to wage a counter coup against the coup and, and allow the MNR to take its rightful place. Um, that began to unravel pretty quickly. And the military found itself uh, facing a pretty uh, rebellious group of armed civilians and armed mine workers who destroyed the military eventually uh, on the three days of April 1952. And it was a very dramatic uh, revolution. It was, a, it was a thoroughgoing social revolution. The military academy was closed for about nine months. Uh, there was some question of whether the military institution would, would be um, uh, rebuilt or whether its uh, its it, it, its destruction would would become a, a fait accompli. Its destruction was a fait accompli. They ended up rebuilding the military institution uh, using the same old uh, military academy, just renamed after a nationalist uh, military figure from the forties. Uh, and the rest, uh, as, as history is in the book, where the military begins to really identify itself with the revolution. The military says, you know, we're not the old oligarchic military. We are children of the revolution, and they began to. Uh, really to, to make sure that they could survive the revolutionary upheaval, they had to commit themselves to progress and, and development. Uh, and, um, you know, they actually had to swear a loyalty oath um, throughout the 1950s after the 52 revolution, swear a loyalty oath to the party if you wanted to be an officer. So, um, so some, some of the things in the book that kind of reveal the uh, intimate connections between the military and the 52 revolution. Um. Your, your central thesis in the book is that development ideology has a tendency to justify authoritarianism and encourage the rise of third world armed forces. What were the core tenets of the developmental ideology that motivated Bolivian nationalist revolutionaries? And how did this ideology relate to 
the ideas of modernization theory that were becoming influential in economics, political science, and sociology in the U.S. Yeah, I think uh, you know that 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 statement you 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 pulled um, there from the book. I think I, the, the way that I the way that I thought about the some of the lessons from the book at the time when I wrote it was that there's a, there's a tendency to think about Cold War dictatorships in Latin America and elsewhere in the global South as having been principally installed as a matter of national security, um, national security doctrine, um, you know, to, to, to stop revolution, to stop the left or to stop the people from uh, progressing uh, in a sense to, to basically uh, tamp down on, on change, to tamp down on, 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 on the communist movements or the leftist movements. What I found in the book was in, in a way sort of the opposite. It, it was, it was, it was, you know, if we, if we take the left, right, um, if, if, if we put the left, right, uh, political, um, continuum aside for a second, uh, there was a, an imperative, uh, in the global South for, for development, for progress. Um, you know, at that time, both left and right sort of defined progress and development in similar, uh, in similar terms and, and like what it would, what it would look like at least aesthetically, uh, and it would be a rejection of of the of the traditional life of traditional life, uh, and so both the left and the right were were, were racing uh, toward uh, a a sort of uh, an imperative of modernization. Um, this helps to explain why some military officers uh, were conspiring with both left and right um, in their in their desire to see their country. And, and you can pick a lot of different countries. I think you've looked at some some countries in Asia or in. Uh, um, or in the Middle East, where where you know a similar uh, developmental or modernizing imperative uh, actually uh, gives a huge um, you know advantage to military officers. And in, in, in many countries, military is seen as the the least corrupt uh, institution, the, the institution that is most honest and and most efficient, uh, the sleekest. You know, they have the shiny equipment in a country where nothing's shiny, maybe you know. And uh, um, and so the military really does take on this this role as as a, as a modernizer, as, as someone, as, as an institution that can turn, help a country turn its back on its past and create out of Bolivia or Turkey or whatever, a real nation, a modern nation. And so that, that, that imperative uh, led to a lot of Cold War, uh, what's called Cold War dictatorships. Uh, and, 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 and these military leaders weren't, you know, it, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, you, you make this argument and especially in the um, post-Cold War period and it's like, what are you apologizing? You know, you're a military apologist, um, you know, and, and, and the, but the fact is that at the time, these military leaders had tremendous popular support um, and, and from many different uh, sides um, in Bolivia and elsewhere. Um, I mean, Borient, in the book, Borientos takes, takes power and, and, and many on the left are hopeful um, at first that, and on the right, that he will hearken a more democratic uh, Bolivia. And, and these hopes uh, are, are shattered in, in most cases, but not all. Um, certain people benefit from his government and certain people do not. But that, that, that's what I mean by um, that development ideology tends to encourage these types of, of solutions. Uh, you know, it, it, it was it, it interpreted development ideology both, uh, mostly on the part of the, well, actually both on the part of the Bolivian modernizers and on the part of the liberal internationalists who were their allies in Washington. Um, they, they would they would interpret any 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 dissent uh, to their development projects as irrational, um, anarcho-syndicalist. Um, you know they. They didn't see um, they didn't see the the peasants 
that were mobilizing uh, against a particular development project, project as rational. They didn't see the workers who were on strike against certain wage cuts as rational. They saw these people as basically, you know, feudal, uh, a sign, sort of a, a remnant of feudalism, actually. And so they needed to be destroyed, according to uh, according to this development ideology, um, which which justified, in a sense, the the rise of the armed forces in Bolivia, and eventually its its takeover of. Of, of the government. I mean, if it's the one doing everything, why does it, you know, why, did, why is it going to give the, this, 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 this shell of a civilian party all the credit? Why not just take over directly? Uh, and that's essentially what, what they did by 1964. And they didn't give power back to the civilians until the early 80s. Uh, so much of what you just described about uh, the role of development ideology and, and this, uh, 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 modernity tradition dichotomy uh that framed so much of the thinking about uh uh development and and development as a catch-up project uh really uh resonates with me as somebody who has studied turkey a lot because um the 1960 military coup in turkey uh, uh had a lot of the same um rhetoric and and i think that a lot of the the military officers who executed that coup um, had in mind uh, a lot of the same ideas they viewed um, the party that was in power in Turkey throughout much of the 50s as representing this um, backwards peasant uh, um, countryside, the periphery, you know, the center periphery distinction is a big uh, theme in, in Turkish politics. Um, uh, and this backward uh, traditional underdeveloped periphery and the military uh, represented this modernizing core that would allow Turkey to catch up and uh, become a uh, the, the the phrase contemporary civilization obviously translated into Turkish is is a major remains a, a major touchstone in, in national political discourse there mm. um, and I think that that really resonates with the with the conflict and also in Turkey in the 60s you see both the right and the left uh, calling for military coups, and you see uh, more right-leaning and more left-leaning military factions at different times uh, uh, plotting military coups uh, during that period. Um, so, so I think that you're you're exactly right that it's it's overly simplistic to view uh, military coups as something that the economic elites or the oligarchy does against the people who are in the process or or threatened to rise up and, you know, take power in a revolution and redistribute everything. I think that it's a, a lot more complicated uh, because um, a lot of what's going on in, in these military coups in the middle of the 20th century and even earlier in some places is uh, um, a projects of, of building states and building markets, uh, which create a lot of contention Um um, because they create a lot of uh, uh, changes in, in ways of life that um, um, people aren't necessarily uh, don't obviously don't see the benefits of right away if there are benefits to them, uh, of course. And uh, and um, we see a lot of these conflicts over um, um, trying to modernize the the productive capacities of the country and, and reorganize society uh, at work uh, uh, in Bolivia. Um, the Bolivian government was led by Victor Paz Asensoro, um, 
who led the MNR, the party that represented the legacy of the revolution. You write that John F. Kennedy saw in President Paz a kindred spirit, a young fellow modernizer heading up what one Kennedy uh, scholar calls a regime in motion. Uh, what was President Paz's personal background and academic training, and how did this shape American perceptions of him? Well, you know, it's um, well. For, for, first, let me mention um, just briefly. I think that uh, the the description you made uh, of Turkey there is very interesting. Um, it seems like you know, looking back at, at Cold War coups in the countries I've looked at, um, you know, more coups were 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 popularly supported than in many cases than than not. I mean, you do have the oligarchic coups. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you do have sometimes a, mil- a military officer acting. You know. To help the oligarchy uh, put down some sort of threat to its uh, prerogatives, but more often that, at least in my experiences, when I've when I've looked at these, it's been the opposite. And the the forty three coup in Bolivia was essentially uh, this 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 uh, a populist coup against the oligarchy, right? It's sort of a um, you know like a, a Nasserite type of thing. Well, before Nasser, um, right. and 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 what 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 I wrote about in the book was what, what was really interesting. And this is when I get back to Victor Paz. Was that Barrientos's General Barrientos's coup in '64 wasn't uh, really a coup against Pasestin Soto, interestingly enough, uh, so much as it was a coup to implement the policies of Pasestin Soto because Pas uh, didn't know how to, or wasn't able to, or was hesitating in a way that was uh, both authoritarian and brutal, but also increasingly ineffective. And the military was being asked to carry out some uh, pretty brutal repression in the name of these policies. They actually ended up carrying those out, but once they had taken power and not under him. So it's kind of interesting. The, 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 the idea that, um, you know, in this case, it was really just the Bolivian revolution essentially um, putting on a uniform. It was, it was really kind of just, the, it was very specifically a carrying on of that legacy. Um, uh, obviously things, things got, things got off the rails in terms of the revolutionary commitment to workers uh, rights and workers involvement, but that's something uh, for my next project. Um, Victor Paz's vision was essentially what the military went on to, to, to try to implement. What was Victor Paz's uh, vision, who was Victor Passes and sort of, you know, like a lot of um, sort of populist revolutionaries, he was not himself uh, of, he was not himself of, of, of modest extraction. <laughs> Pass was a, was a kind of a, uh, of a landowning family, uh, not an enormous landowning family, but they had their finca. They had like a lot of uh, families of the of the gentry of, of Bolivia at the time, they had their their land. They were from uh, Tarija, which is kind of a an especially um, gentry uh, led um, region of Bolivia, a small town in southern Bolivia near Argentina, kind of the uh, the region of, of wine and horse riding, and um, and and passes from there. Um, he 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 had a you know. A small uh, farm, which I believe he kept a lot of. It wasn't, you know, there weren't they weren't there weren't a lot of peasants uh, working for. You know, it wasn't as if his was, um, you know, it wasn't a productive farm or anything like that. And, and in any case, most of the land reform that he carried out was in the it was in the highlands where most of the indigenous peasants uh, lived at the time. So he's not, you know, he's not, um, you know, he's not a he's not a, was he a traditional revolutionary. He was. He was much more of a propagandist, and that's what I think people, when they think about the MNR, really describe them as pamphleteers and propagandists. 
uh, who who uh, their their newspaper was called the, the La Calle or the Street in the forties, and it, it sometimes peddled in anti-Semitic tropes and kind of uh, um, you know they were they were they were against the capitalists and, and sort of the, the British and the Americans and the bankers and um, you know they were they were they were they were they were nationalist propagandists, very sort of rabble rousing, uh, middle class. Um, you know uh, they were they they wanted to essentially like you know create they, they wanted to they wanted to break up the 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 foreign controlled sort of capitalist economy of bolivia and put it in the hands of bolivians uh, you know the, the sort of traditional like you know literally nationalization as opposed to like turning it over to the state and saying literally nationalization um those you know those uh voices that were had had a more sort of social revolutionary a tendency in the MNR were actually from the Trotskyist Party, uh, the POR, the POR, um, and 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 the Trotskyist Party itself, which continued to exist uh, into the 1950s, which was part of the original revolutionary sloganeering in the late 40s and early 50s, had called for um, the turning over of the mining of the mine companies to the state and the and the land of the to the Indians. And Victor Paz was, you know, very politically savvy and had spent um, most of the 40s and and and. Congress as a kind of uh, a rabble rousing uh, revolutionary order, um, calling for the end of the oligarchy, uh, calling you know defaming the oligarchy as basically a, 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 an anti national force, um, you know very populist language, never really criticizing the United States so much, never really criticizing you know um, uh, you know being clear that you know that he, he's like he's read Marx, but he's not a Marxist. You know he's sort of um, uh, very much a sort of uh, inchoate type of revolutionary ideology, and 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 looked for a cross class coalition uh, that would uh, destroy the Bolivian oligarchy, a, a cross class coalition of workers and peasants and middle class professionals. Um, you know, I, I don't think in the book I, 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 I you know, refer to the MNR as sort of quasi-fascist, but you know, if if you think about sort of the original thinking of like a cross-class coalition, uh, the national body as being something that has to purge foreign elements from, sort of a sort of a 1920s style uh, Italian fascism, it was, it was there were some there were some strong similarities as they themselves admitted, and that's sort of Victor Paz's. Uh, uh, backgrounds. Um, he did have uh, good relations with the Communist Party uh, as a separate entity. That he, in a way, he hoped that he could create the Communist, help the Communist Party be kind of like a loyal opposition uh, by tolerating their activities in Bolivia. But you know, kind of like Nasser had done, kind of like Nehru uh, did. You know, his 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 lodestars were like Sukarno as well in Indonesia. Like those were the people he really looked, he really admired. Um, the, the non-aligned nationalists who represented their country, you know, capital T, capital C, their country against, you know, the rest of the world and, and, and didn't ascribe to any particular systematic ideology like, you know, Marxism or capitalism or anything that was sort of transnational. Um, and that was at least the rhetoric. That was his thinking. That's where he came from. And I think everything he did has to be put within that, that context. I think, you know, you and I talked uh, before the interview, uh, uh, we, we were looking at some part of the book where I mentioned that Pass was a sincere nationalist. And that's something that people have pushed back on sometimes when when discussing the book, because you know, given how much he handed the revolution over to the Americans, so given how much he gave, you know, the United States, um, a, 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 you know, not just a window, but, you know, 
wide open doors to come into every ministry and to really uh, take charge of, of a lot of the aspects of the revolution. People have claimed that he wasn't a sincere nationalist. But, uh, you know, even his personal, you look at his personal letters, uh, his, his son published some of his personal letters. Um, you talk to people who knew him, people who continue to try to carry on his legacy. You know, the Americans were a tool according to Victor Pass, a tool to help develop Bolivia into, into its own nation. He had separate deals, again, like I mentioned, with the Communist Party. He had an understanding with Cuba. You know, he, he, he had constant economic missions he was sending to the Soviet Union. I don't think that Victor Paz Estensoro was a courageous nationalist, right? Uh, you know, I don't know if he was as courageous, let's say, as a Nasser or a Sukarno, um, but he was a nationalist, and and that's you know given the, the 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 difficulties of running Bolivia, a landlocked nation surrounded by 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 by, by countries that were actually quite hostile to the Bolivian Revolution. Uh, you know he tried to do what he could to preserve the revolution, um, and part of that was to make a deal with the United States that he hoped would maintain his room room for maneuver. Uh, but increasingly, by 1964, it couldn't. In fact, I think the the real breaking point in the book of Bolivia's nationalism or Victor Pazes and Soto's nationalism is when uh, the United States uh, threatens to cut off all funding if the, if the Bolivians don't break with Cuba. You know, the Americans can't understand why Bolivia doesn't break with Cuba they, you know, they, because the Bolivian nationalists are being very nice to the Americans to their face. They're talking about how much they don't like Cuba. But privately, you know, they need to have this relationship with Cuba. They need to show independence. They, they actually want to play uh, both sides against one another in the Cold War. And so the Americans are like, well, if this is all, you know, the Americans are hearing another side. So when the Bolivian, when they force the Bolivians to break with Cuba, they think this is an obvious thing. The Bolivians need to stand up against the communists, against the Cubans. But in reality, it, it, it destroys the nationalists' internal game. And it, and it, and it completely um, empties out what, you know, what, whatever nationalist mystique they still had in August of 1964 uh, was gone, and between August and and, and October of sixty four, it's just a an unraveling of the of the nationalist revolution. Yeah, and I I think that um, in describing uh, how President Paz was a sincere nationalist who nonetheless um, invited uh, Americans in, uh, I think that a lot of uh, nationalists in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, they, going back to if you look at the Japanese in the 19th century, they want to learn from who they the countries that they see as as um, developed countries or or uh, modern countries. They want to gain technology and and knowledge from these places. They just don't want to surrender their autonomy to them um necessarily in response and so there's always that tension for a lot of these people uh um um uh i i think that it's a mistake to view uh nationalism as uh in, in a lot of these places as a complete rejection of the rest of the world or even of 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 the developed countries it's more of a, a question of having the room to maneuver and, and make your own policies for yourself that i think that um, a lot of people wanted to hold on to, and ultimately, as you said, that was the breaking point for 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 Paz's nationalist credibility. Um, yeah, modernizing nationalism is probably right. the right way. It's, you know, nationalism and xenophobia are related, but they're not the you know not they're not the same thing. And in fact, uh, you know, and, and there's so many characters of the national revolution in Bolivia, so many characters, so many protagonists, you know, central figures that. Uh, did exactly as you say. You know, privately they were saying, "I don't like the gringos," <laughs> but I'm just inviting another military 
uh, mission down. Uh, or uh, as one as one very left wing military officer told me recently, um, you know, his his hero is General Ovando, who later took over and kicked out the Americans and everything, kicked out USAID and Gulf Oil. And he, he was he was very proudly telling me how General Ovando had invited, had actually sent decided to send them all to Panama and he said, learn everything you can learn about those, about from those Americans, learn everything you can, because we are going to kick them all out, you know, like later. So it's very interesting. And you know how, how sometimes people, yeah, so absolutely. They, 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 uh, in fact, I think in some literature they're uh, referred to like as, ja- um, I don't know how to pronounce it, like ja- uh, Japanizers or Japanizers, like, from, you know, from the, uh, from the Meiji restoration in the 18, mid 18, 1800s. Yeah. They're, they're, they're looking to emulate uh, the West as much as they can, or emulate the United States, and so that's kind of what they what they what they're all about. That's a that's a very good observation. I agree completely. Yeah. Um. So the Kennedy administration, as well as the MNR government, sought to incorporate the armed forces within the development process. Uh, um, and as a consequence, the Bolivian military began to perform functions like the construction of infrastructure that went well beyond the narrow security-oriented activities that we con- commonly associate with armed forces. Um, how did this increasing participation in development programs affect political dynamics within the military itself and relations between military and political leaders? Uh, yeah, so so uh, as 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 we talked a little bit about before, the the uh, the reality of of the national revolution having succeeded at the expense of the military institution in 1952 forced the military institution to uh, really reinvent itself if it wanted to survive. Um, military officers uh, talk about throughout the 50s how they um, how they um, had to march around with uh, batons instead of rifles. You know, they were basically did disarmed. It was a really embarrassing thing for them. They had to justify their existence. They had to justify budgets because they really didn't have any money uh, at, at the beginning. They were kept on a very short lease between 1952, let's say in 1958 or 59. Uh, and so by the 58-59, they began to work with, uh, with, with the MNR, the, the, the Nationalist Party, to to play a greater role in in development, and so the 1960 inauguration of Victor Paz, he comes back from London to reclaim his you know his presidency after a four year interregnum where his vice president took over, and uh, he's got a vision now for the, what he calls the constructive phase of the revolution, and the military is thrilled. I mean, these young officers who. Uh, who thought of themselves as nationalists? Uh, one of the most important officers, uh, the one who actually led the coup in '64, uh, had 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 actually gone to Buenos Aires to pick up Victor Paz in '52 when the revolution succeeded to bring him back. And these these are officers running the military who are children of the revolution. They are in favor of the revolution. Um, they are declaring themselves, uh, you know, um, party members. Uh, the National Political Committee of the of the of the MNR party, and so by by, by you know this is this is why the MNR doesn't see empowering the military as contrary to its own political interests because they are party members. This is basically the armed wing of the MNR party. Uh, that's that's something that was a sort of reality that um, many military officers began to resent to the junior officers who weren't children of the revolution. They began to say, "Why are we the armed?" 
you know, we don't remember what it was like under the oligarchy. We only know uh, the, the the Nationalist Party. I'm sure that they were great in terms of Bolivian progress, but why are we just an armed wing of a, of a political party? Why don't, you know, uh, don't we have any dignity? And so um, you began to see uh, this uh, attitude of, of independence and of actually superiority. Um, the 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 attitude of, of superiority amongst military officers was particularly strong in the engineering corps. Uh, uh, the, the engineering uh, battalions that many of them had been created uh, with U.S. funds, totally with U.S. funds, because these were considered to be, uh, you know, no, in fact, USAID was uh, using a huge amounts of money that it, it had much more money than the Pentagon's, you know, military training budget. And they were building military battalions uh, that were building roads and 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 and, and health centers. Uh, so, so those who participated in uh, those military officers who participated in development uh, were were you know shooting up the ranks bureaucratically. They were getting promoted. They were becoming colonel and general, etc. But they were also they were all over the news as well. Um, and and it, it, by by nineteen sixty you know by the early nineteen sixties, military officers really become kind of the arbiters of a lot of of social problems when there is a dispute in a particular village. The military's there and they are well, you know, they have arms, they have weapons. And so you kind of have the military beginning to keep the peace and the countryside between different caciques. Uh, you have the military coming in and sort of showing its, its, its brass and its steel and its, 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 its you know, building um, potable water and, and shiny, you know, water towers and shiny new school buildings. And, um, and, so, and so the military officers who work with the civic action, what was what the Pentagon called it, um, began to move up. The, the ranks begin to become quite high profile figures uh, and 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 that does affect military civil relations uh, more you know many people already knew who uh, the head of the Air Force was because he had he had become almost a celebrity by 1963 and and, and this is why the military put him forward as their representative in uh, the presidential palace they wanted him to run you know, they wanted Paz to choose him as as vice president if the MNR is going to continue to rule the military wanted a a seat at the table in the presidential palace. Um, he was a celebrity by that point. So that's really the sort of um, the, the politics of military civic action, which I know that, you know, I know you're interested in and you're working on as well. Um, th- there's some interesting memos that I found when I was looking at civic action uh, from the, from the Pentagon and from the uh, state department um, that, you know, they're, they're really long winded justifications for, uh, you know, for increasing military aid to Bolivia by like, I mean, from like 1 million to like, well, it was like 1,200%. So what is that? Like from 500,000 to like 50 million or something like that in the 60s, in the late 60s. How is this not going to end up leading to a coup? I mean, the, you know, it's a, sort of an obvious question that non-specialists were asking around the White House. And those in the know, uh, the experts on Bolivia, the experts in Latin America were saying, no, 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 the military is engaged in civic action. So this is not going to lead to a coup. The military is totally under the... National of course, there's civic in the name. Like, it's right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it can't lead to a coup, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that you, you touch on uh, something really interesting when you talk about um, uh, how U.S. funding for uh, the engineering corps in the Bolivian military. Um, uh, uh, I think that an unintended consequence of U.S. military during the 1950s and 60s was to um, alter uh, which aspects of the military uh, 
were the most valuable in terms of career promotions? Uh, I've been thinking about this in terms of the French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu's idea of symbolic capital uh, within a field uh, um, where um, uh, in the military field, there's uh, actors, officers try to struggle to accumulate capital uh, to get promotions, they accumulate social ties, they accumulate skills that'll help them move up the ranks. But there's also this struggle over which skills and which uh, social ties should be the ones that are the most rewarded. And I think that U.S. military aid during this period um, um, set in motion within militaries in the third world this competition over uh, what is it that the military is supposed to do and which skills are going to be rewarded. And this created a lot of tension within militaries as well as between militaries and and and, and polities during the 50s and 60s. This is part of the story in both Turkey and Thailand, which are the, the cases that I'm I'm familiar with, where um, US trained junior officers uh, started to take issue uh, with their seniors who had different types of training, different types of skills, different types of experiences. Uh, and it led to um, a lot of rifts that that um, contributed to the political instability of, of later decades. Um, and I think that that's something that kind of comes out in what you were talking about. There's a new book out. I have to get the citation and send it to you later, but there's a, I have to remember where I saw it, but it's, it's, it's a study, I believe it's a political scientist actually, who looks at foreign training uh, and coups, and it and it looks both at the U.S. and the Soviet Union during during the 20th century, and it shows that uh, you know officers who go to study abroad are more likely to lead coups later. It's like they come back with all these ideas, and it's, so it's not it's, and it's not it's not the conspiratorial narrative that you know they go to the United States and they become coup leaders. It's just that they they, they have the cachet, they have the Americans' ear, they have access to the purse, they think a lot of themselves in their training, and so they become sort of immediately uh, they get the, the they get the they get picked you know hey wh- hey why don't you you know you know the americans well why don't you uh, lead this lead this uh, lead this coup then everyone will assume right. their foreign ties become symbolically powerful yes. uh, m- not even primarily instrumentally powerful in terms of facilitating the execution of a coup d'etat but more of uh, symbolically powerful in terms of well you have connections with the americans they have the money therefore you must be in a position where you can get us more money and more, more uh, prestige and more status, and that and that's why for fifty years until until I published this book, I mean, to my knowledge, it's you know everyone just assumed the U.S. was behind the coup of '64 because it was led by a U.S. trained and I mean basically it was led by someone who was incredibly close to the Americans. So why I mean it just stands to reason why you know why would he have done what all of his buddies in the U.S. embassy opposed but he actually did you know no one even believed like when american officials tried to claim no 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 he came to us we told him not to they're like yeah 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 because actually for many years i mean that, that actually those those disclaimers came later for many years the americans didn't want to say well we didn't oppose we didn't support that coup because they don't want to undercut their friend who's now the president you know they have to kind of be like well you know they don't want to overdo it and so you had and the president of course who did the coup uh He's still claiming the Americans are behind him, even though they took a month to recognize. I mean, there were moments where a, a lot of people in Bolivia are like, dude, do you really have the support amongst the Americans we thought you did? <laughs> and, and so, 
the Americans kind of are forced to go ahead and recognize, even though they, they're a little upset with their buddy uh, for going ahead and doing it, even though they, they actually had told him, you got to be kidding me. Don't, don't do this. You know, the, our, our plan doesn't include you overthrowing Victor Passes and so on. So it really is. Um, it's so much more interesting than the, you know, than the, I guess, the traditional narrative of the U.S. being, and the U.S. is involved, just not in the way we always think that they are, right? They're just always there in Bolivia anyway, and they have lots of operations and development projects, but they're not like, they're not calling the shots. I guess, the, you know, people would resent it in Bolivia if they did. You know, hey, you do this, you do that. They're going to be hated really quickly. Uh, you know, even even um, even their presence uh, breeds resentment oftentimes amongst the, 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 uh, the more nationalistically uh, inclined uh, officers and, and and civilian political leaders. So yeah, they're, they're, the American involvement or you know the Soviet involvement. I'm sure in countries where it was very deeply involved, it's not oftentimes like you know calling every shot. It's not it's not omnipotent. And I think that's one thing the book uh, draws out. And I was never sure how people would react to the book because you know uh, if I'm basically saying that the U.S. wasn't behind the coup of '64, what does that do to you know years of narrative from every because those who were overthrown, they actually also fed into that narrative. Hey, the Americans overthrew me because it looks good to them. They look like martyrs, even though they had been, you know, they were they had been hand in hand with the CIA for, you know, throughout the whole 1950s and 60s, particularly the early 60s. But then they're going to say, well, the Americans overthrew me. Um, if you look at Victor Pass's language, he's much more careful. But many of the people around him, even though sometimes they knew that the Americans didn't overthrow them. They knew that they had been actually working with the CIA themselves when they got overthrown. Um, they, they, it all fit, it, it fit everyone's narrative to claim that the Americans had, had overthrown the government in 1964. Um, but the actual narrative is so much more interesting. And I think it reveals so much more about, as you say, military civilian relations, uh, Latin American sort of politics, the evolution of the cold war in Latin America. And I think for me anyway, most importantly, what I'm really interested in always is, like is you know the U.S. role in the world. Um, it's so much more interesting than people think, um, right? You know, and not good or bad. It's, you know, it's just different. Germany has always been more negotiated than a lot of people realize when it comes to their relations with global South countries. It's been, um, you know, sure they bring a lot of pressure to bear. They often get what they want, but it's always. Uh, you know, U.S. policymakers never feel like they can just like, oh, let me call up this general and execute a coup on you because he did this thing I don't like. Uh, it's quite helpless. I mean, if you look at U.S. documents, they're always talking about how helpless they are, how they're victimized. You know, from the U.S. government perspective, they're constantly being victimized. You know, the U.S. and U.S. industries that, you know, they're always being used. They're always being, you know, we're giving money and they're taking us for a fool and we get no leverage. And in fact, uh, there's a really interesting document I found. Um, uh, for my next book, the British, uh, the British uh, embassy, uh, are, are, they're basically writing like, we don't understand why the Americans get, you know, don't use the leverage. They're giving half the budget of Bolivia or basically U.S. taxpayer dollars. <laughs> why don't they, you know, use the leverage they have, you know, to say, do this, don't do that. But they, so the British embassy was quite, you know, impressed in the 1960s when, uh, you know, shocked or like, you know, why is, are the Americans letting all this stuff go crazy? They could actually run this like a proper empire if they just, you know, stepped up. Right. Uh, instead, it's quite chaotic oftentimes. There's, you know, um, huge amounts of power, but not necessarily uh, tinkering around. They think right. they find so, so some of the some of the liberal internationalists think that they're that they're going to be able to fine tune things, but uh, when push comes to shove, it's almost just more like a bull in the china shop. Right, um, and it. 
an important contribution of your book, in my view, is that you connect ground level conflicts over development programs to elite level civil military conflicts, which is not common in social science treatments of military coups. Your narrative focused on the key political conflict between Paz's government and the communist miners of Silovente over a proposal for mine rehabilitation called the Triangular Plan. What was the Triangular Plan and why did the miners oppose it? Um, so this is actually a good example of um, of how, as we were just discussing, how uh, the Americans are, you know, sometimes like invited in. Um, the the um, the nationalist government uh, decided to to court uh, aid from both sides of the Cold War. They were hoping uh, to court. Um, more aid from the Americans by courting Soviet aid. I, I argue in a separate, in a separate essay. Well, actually, the essay in the edited volume that we discussed a few months back, that the that the middle class nationalist government of Victor Paz never honestly considered going communist. They never considered actually just taking money from the Soviets, and it was always just a boogeyman to try to get more uh, help from the United States. Um, but they accepted. Support not much. Um, it, it's almost a tragic story that, that that I'm finishing in my in my current book because the triangular plan uh, lasted from 1961 to 1965. Uh, so the very end of it actually comes during the Barrientos government. Uh, but but it was it was a, it was a very you know it was it was in some ways this this shows you how contemporary politics can can get off the rails very quickly without too much without a lot of historical perspective but the triangle plan was supposedly this revolutionary moment where the united states was demonstrating a huge amount of of generosity and progressivism because the united states was going to give aid government aid us aid to a state run industry to a state owned mine to, to the state owned mining company i mean you know it's like it's like it's like the U.S. government giving money to PDVSA in Venezuela or something. I mean, you know, you're giving money to a company that 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 exists due to the nationalization of private property, including some foreign ownership. I mean, some of the mining companies had some part ownership, not much, but some part ownership by by Americans. A lot of part ownership by British investors. So, it you know, it was depicted as this really incredible demonstration that oh, we have a democratic government in the United States. Uh, they're not going to be as stingy as the Republicans. They're going to be more friendly to labor in Bolivia. At that point, the, the Bolivian government still had an alliance with the labor movement. And they welcomed, including the labor movement, welcomed uh, U.S. aid into, uh, you know, into, into Bolivia. Uh, but as soon as the conditions were known, uh, in uh, July, I think, was the first strike uh, against the Triangular Plan um, in 1961, uh, the 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 um, the alliance between the, the 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 nationalist party and labor began to unravel very very quickly. Um, the, what 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 the conditions of the triangular plan, uh, which which were revealed actually from the past government. I mean, this is the type of thing the Americans had to deal with with the past government. They liked the fact that they had a progressive credentials, but they had a lot of leaks because they had a lot of actual nationalists, a lot of actual lefties in their government, and so they leaked. Someone leaked out to the press. Um, the conditions, and, and there were secret conditions, but in, in exchange for ten million dollars, which is not a lot to give, you know, the the, the Soviets actually offered a hundred million with no strings attached. You know, uh, so ten million dollars was the first tranche of the triangular plan. It was money that was supposed to go to 
rehabilitate the state-owned mine company and help it to produce more. But in reality, it was basically a union-busting plan. It was, you know, $10 million was the price that the Americans paid to break the unions. And what were the conditions? So one, one was to fire 25% of them, 20% of the miners. So 5,000 out of 25,000 mine workers. This is how they were going to get them. You know, a lot of the money, in fact, was just going to go to pay severance to the fired miners. Um, the other of the, of the, there were three main conditions that were really harsh. The, uh, the next one was to end mine worker um, representation on the mine company board. So you could no longer have what they called control obrero, which was kind of like a co a co-governing structure, co-management structure. The mine workers would have no more say in management decisions, <clears throat> and that was a major victory of the revolution to to bring workers into the management of companies. So this was a big big deal as well. Um, but probably the most uh, extreme, not necessarily in transcendental terms, but in practical terms, was the physical removal of communist mine workers from the labor unions, from the, from the union leadership. I mean, that was going to take physical, you know, arrests. That was going to take bloodshed. Everyone knew it was going to be a very difficult thing to carry out. And that, in fact, was what led to a lot of the bloodshed for the, you know, for the next five years, uh, from 61 to 65. In fact, uh, at one point, USAID allocates some of the money that was part of the triangular plan to a contingency plan that's going to arm peasant militias to go assassinate. Uh, the union leaders at the at the biggest mining camp. So these conditions weren't, you know, they weren't. They, they were pretty extreme. They were pretty extreme. And some of the MNR loyalists were okay with these conditions because they would lead to the MNR fully taking over the workers' movement, which at that time was quite uh, diverse. You had MNR leaders, you had communist leaders, and you had some Trotskyist leaders in certain mining camps as well. So you had, you know, they wanted to take over fully the miner, the mine union work, the mine workers uh, movement, consolidate their control over the mine worker movement. So triangular plan in a weird way, and it's union busting, was the, the MNR hoped that they could use it to, uh, to sort of um, purge the, the mine workers of, of unloyal elements. But it actually backfired, and the MNR left uh, the MNR, the MNR workers left the party themselves joined with their communist brothers uh, in the mines uh, joined with their Trotskyist brothers in the mines and the mine movement went completely into the opposition uh, and in fact the entire MNR left left the party uh, as a result of the triangular plan um, they, they ended up getting a second phase of triangular money in 1962 again every time there were strikes there were major arrests there were some exiles there was bloodshed uh, and these strikes went on and on throughout 64. In fact, one of the ways that I'm starting my new book about the military period is acknowledging that the fight over the triangular plan in many ways led to the fall of the MNR because when the MNR fell from power in November 1964, uh, they had ordered the military to invade the mines, take over the mining camps and expel the union leaders. And the military had said, no, you leave, basically. Um, and, and the next six months after that is what I'm writing about now, uh, chapter one of my new book, the military is negotiating with the Americans. They're like, no, no, we took over because we didn't want to invade the mining camps. And the Americans are like, well, if you want the next tranche of money, you have to invade the mining camps. And, and you know, they don't say it like that, but there's no other way you can physically remove the union leaders without going into the mining camps. And everyone knows that. And so by May of 1965, the mining camps are occupied and, um, and 200 workers are removed, uh, leaders and, and exiled um, lots of bloodshed as well. So that's kind of that's the triangular plan. The the mine workers 
who were not in the MNR, who, who opposed it from the very beginning. Of course, the MNR left all opposed it by 1963. But in 1961-62, one of the most important union leaders at the time, Federico Escobar, um, called it the, well, in Spanish, it sounds better, but not the triangular plan, but the strangular plan. Triangular plan estrangular. Instead of the plan triangular. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think that this is a really fascinating um, um, uh, uh, set of incidents, set of events around the triangular plan and, and all that unfolded as a, as a consequence of it, because it shows another indirect way in which uh, U.S. aid and, and U.S. programs contributed to uh, political destabilization and ultimately a military coup. Um, when I was reading about the triangular plan, I was thinking this almost prefigures the structural adjustment policies uh, of later decades, because what they're trying to do is reorganize this the this state-owned mining company, although they're not privatizing it like structural adjustment programs would. The next best thing they're trying to do from, from the U.S.'s perspective is try to put it on a more economically rational footing, um, uh, make people work, make labor markets more flexible as, as the economists, uh, would put it, which is to say making people work longer hours for, uh, worse benefits, uh, firing some people who are deemed superfluous, uh, as well as getting rid of these more intransigent, uh, uh, mining leaders. Um, and, and you, you say that the U S, uh, um, the designers of the triangular plan uh, knew that this could provoke violence when they uh, uh, set aside these funds for for tear gas and and the sorts of thing, um, these sorts of uh, um, um, contingencies, as as you put it. Um, and they this uh, enacting, putting the pressure on the Bolivian government to enact this restructuring put a lot of, uh, uh, was a stress test for the Bolivian state, essentially. Uh, what is sometimes called um, in uh, uh, pretty euphemistic language, state capacity uh, was really at, at test here, the capacity to enact reforms and have have the state's policies uh, followed. And ultimately that broke the government, as you said, because the, the military didn't want to follow through on invading this mining camp and, and all of the bloodshed that that would entail. Um, miners were also armed, uh, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, not well, but yes. Right. right. <laughs> you know, uh, sure the Bolivian military probably would have conquered the, the camp, but it would have been bloody and it would have been. Talks about like Vietnam when they finally invaded in May of 65, there was a lot of, I mean, it, it, it was a, it was a firefight. Um, they, they were, there were, there were enough, there were five or six, maybe automatic weapons and uh, a lot of Mausers. So yeah, they had some, they had some weapons. They were definitely outmatched, but um, you mentioned, you mentioned the tear gas. Yeah. That was USAID. Um, USAID also uh, put, a lot of money into organizing uh, a new union movement that would be uh, loyal to the right wing of the MNR. Basically that uh, also led to uh, an increasingly polarized situation that led to the coup. Um, and of course the, uh, the, the military units that carried out the, uh, the, the mine invasion was actually a, a ranger battalion that was uh, built and created in the same year that the triangular plan was uh, approved. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't at all, uh, coincidence, the Ranger Battalion was created just outside the mining camp for the express purpose of keeping uh, internal security in the 
unstable mine region. So, um, you know, they, they knew what was coming. They prepared for it. And the, it, it tested state capacity. But the one institution that survived was uh, was obviously the, uh, the armed forces. So, um, right. yeah, they got to direct things. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that uh, in, in this period as well, in, in Thailand, uh, one of the countries I'm studying, the uh, U.S. also uh, tried to um, defang uh, a labor movement there by setting up their own kind of uh, pro-business labor movement. I don't know if I would, I don't know if that's a good way to describe it, but certainly much more loyal to the U.S.'s agenda. Pro-capitalist um, uh, collective right. bargaining uh, union, right? Exactly, and um, uh, and at the same time, the U.S. was supporting the creation of a uh, uh, Thai border police and mm-hmm. and ramping up their support for for um, um, uh, ironically, actually, different facet, different actors within the U.S. mission in Thailand supported different factions within the Thai uh, military and 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 broader security apparatus, but uh, but there are certainly um um similarities i see between the 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 strategy in dealing with these miners and and uh strategies that the us implemented elsewhere during the 1960s of trying to um co-opt labor movements or create uh uh pro-capitalist labor movements while at the same time betressing the security state with the knowledge that some of these policies that they were promoting would uh, increase uh, or intensify class conflict. There's one other thing. There's one other thing that the um, that the USAID programs in Bolivia were doing. Uh, aside from just you know trying to make the state-run mine company profitable through firing and through wage cuts, um, they also <clears throat> um, they, they also. I mean, where were all these mine workers going to go? Uh, that answer was to the private mines. That were being created. So, so, so part of the uh, another condition. There were other conditions as well that weren't actually leaked in '61, but came out in '65. Uh, was that uh, part of the triangular plan was to uh, spend this money to ensure that the Bolivians pass a new mining code that will permit so-called medium-sized mines. And these are mine, mines that uh, are basically uh, they're not really medium-sized at all. They're, they, they were owned by like Citibank and like the Rockefellers and Carnegies or whatever uh, Peter Grace's company. And so they kind of began to take over mining. And by 1969, the biggest mines in the country are actually in private hands again. So the denationalization of the Bolivian mining industry was a very obvious, very obvious, but still unspoken goal as well of it. So, I mean, it, the, the deeper you go, the more you find that um, it's 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 amazing, really. <laughs> this is what I love about studying history because we get more and more analyses and more and more documents over the years that reveal things that were hidden uh, at the time and in many cases were hidden for many years. Right. and Or else uh, maybe were dismissed as feverish conspiracy yeah. theories uh, yeah. uh, in some cases. I, I was still dismissing that particular argument until recently. I mean, I was still dismissing that when I wrote the first book. I've only recently begun to uncover evidence of U.S. pressure on the whole privatization scheme that, you know, because I was always wondering where are these mine workers supposed to go? Some of, I mean, in, in 62, 63, they were talking about sending them down to farms. Uh, you know, we're going to go to these these farms that USAID was helping to build. In many cases, like ended up being the coca growers movements. Uh, they were already uh, organizing uh, uh, left-wing uh, peasant unions in the Chapare 
which is where Evo Morales came out of uh, in 1964, 65. Um, so there was some speculation that they might have joined the Che Guevara uprising already. They weren't quite that well developed yet, but um, until, you know, as they were in the 1990s when Evo Morales came out of that. But, uh, you know, I, I was still, you know, I, in, in terms of just not, you know, just turning them over to American companies, I, I dismissed that until recently because yeah, it just seems too conspiratorial. <laughs> and then you and then you find documents where yeah, okay, that's actually what was happening. Holy cow! It's just not you know it's so impolite to refer to it at the time that it really does escape a lot of a lot of official government documents, State Department documents. It's just it's so impolite. It's so uh, these types of backroom deals are so kind of gross that they you know civil servants just prefer to think of themselves, I think, as civil servants and not as clients for wall street uh, and so they act like that they a lot of times don't include that in their you know weekly summaries <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? yeah and i think that some of the some of the antiseptic technical language yeah. that uh surrounds development policy uh this function right of 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 uh making it so that you can almost hide to yourself what the logical consequences of your policy that yeah, of the policy. to yourself i think yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh and i think this question of you know where were the miners supposed to go i think that this speaks to um a broader uh broader problem with the the development policies that the u.s and the world bank continues to promote of you know they they um, push for the rationalization of 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 state or privatization of these state run uh, companies because these factories or mines or farms or what have you are, are not run being run efficiently and, and profitably. Um, but then they don't really answer the question or even address the question of what happens to the people that get let go. They just kind of assume, oh, the invisible hand will take care of it. The labor market will make adjustments and they don't think about, you know, uh, how much of a disruption this is to the people involved and how much, uh, fear and uncertainty that, that, um, uh, these, uh, policies of, of rationalization create and what the political consequences of that fear and uncertainty can be uh, 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 and what kind of resistance that can spark. Right. Well, it's not really their problem. You know, I think at the end of the day, um, you know, they, they think that the Bolivians, they thought the Bolivians were exaggerating or were, uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, I mean, sometimes they were, I mentioned the MNR actually had its own reason for supporting some of these crackdowns. Uh, I asked one, I asked the head of the mine company who is a civil servant. I mean, it's a state run mining company. So I asked him, I said, what, you know, I said, I said, cause he was bragging about how the whole triangular plan was his, was his plan. He, you know, he actually came up with it in Germany when he was studying in you know, Berlin and uh, late fifties. And it was his plan. And I said, well, then why do you guys seem like you, you hate it so much? These are all imposed by the Americans. He said, Oh, that's just part of the show. We just want a better deal. <laughs> so we're constantly, you know, so, so I mean that, you know, that's, that's one thing that I probably, when we're talking about the triangular plan, I'm talking about these secret conditions. I mean, these aren't conditions that are forced. As I say, it wasn't even that much money. It was, they wanted to get as much as they could from the Americans, just from a deal-making perspective, but uh, for the Bolivian nationalists were actually wanted uh, to break the communist union and right. it's yeah. like a plausible deniability kind of thing oh, uh, americans get yeah. for it even better absolutely right right exactly and, and that's yeah. why a lot of these uh um 
these these interactions are a lot more transactional than kind of simplistic, one-sided, instrumental narr- instrumentalist uh, narratives make them out to be, uh, where both sides are 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 trying to benefit from these sorts of programs that uh, uh, wind up being very controversial and 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 creating a lot of instability um, and factions of of you know, the client country, uh, still wind up benefiting from, um, from the outcomes. Um, okay. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to move ahead, uh, a little bit. Um, uh, we've talked a little bit about, um, general Rene Barrientos, uh, becoming an important figure, uh, um, when he's promoted from air force chief to vice president. Um, uh, so, um, what role did uh, uh, Barrientos basically? How did he rise to a, a figure, become a figure of prominence within the military, and how does this connect to the civic action programs and and um, the controversies over the mines? Uh, that's one of the best parts about your question. Is I think I'll, I'll start just by saying that you know when we think about the military. Um, you know, Barrientos never was that big of a character in the military because uh, it was an Air Force, uh, Air Force general. It was a very the Air Force was tiny, um, right? And 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 he was never really fully accepted <laughs> amongst the uh, military apparatus as a whole. I mean, he had his you know, lots of people liked him, um, you know, in the in the army, but uh, you know, he his claim to celebrity as a as a, the term I used before. Uh, in terms of like his 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 daring actions, his civic action, uh, you know, he'd fly in with huge amounts of milk and 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 development projects, and he would go on and on about how wonderful the Americans are for bringing it, and how he's you know he 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 he'd brag about his connections with the Americans, how he just got back from the White House, you know, blah blah blah. So he was you know he 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 was he was much more of a uh, of a sort of a populist figure. So it's more of a a, a, a people's man, a man of the people, than a than a military institutionalist, and and he um, he was especially popular amongst the peasantry. He was himself from a, a provincial town, a very small town, in the Cochabamba province. He grew up uh, around Quechua. His mom, indigenous woman, is uh, uh, a sort of a swashbuckling Quechua speaker. His Quechua wasn't great. Uh, he actually got some Quechua lessons. Um, as he began to become a celebrity, as his political star began to rise, he got some polishing of his Quechua, and he would go around and speak in Quechua. I mean, you can actually uh, one of his uh, was was recorded. You can get it off of YouTube. He's a very compelling, very beautiful orator. I mean, he his speeches are absolutely meaningless, but they're very you know very flowery uh, rhetoric. Um, so that that's where his power uh, lied um, was in the um, in the, in, you know, amongst the people, amongst the, the peasantry, especially. Um, and, and this is one of the, one of the ways that he was able to essentially inherit the MNR, um, the, the, the MNR, the pro, the peasantry, which is very pro MNR became very pro Barrientos. He, he sort of, he just, it just, their, their allegiances just passed directly from Victor Paz and the MNR to Barrientos. And he even created an MPC, which was a, Movimiento is another movement. The Movimiento Nacionalista was the MNR, uh, Revolucionario, uh, 
and then his was the Movimiento Popular Cristiano, the, the popular Christian movement. But it was basically the exact same peasant unions, the rural unions that adhered to membership in uh, the MNR or into the MPC. You know, one th- that, that actually brings a little aside, little parentheses. Bolivian politics, Bolivian society is such that, you know, the MNR was known as kind of a peasant party, even though it was middle class led. Movimentista um, was almost synonymous in those days with Indian. You know, it was like a it was a term of disparagement in the, amongst in the, amongst the city folk about oh those movimentistas, milicianos. Sometimes they call them militiamen. The movimentistas and militiamen were all you know because these indigenous peasants were armed. They formed the party cadres and they would intimidate people. Similarly, the MPC of Barrientos was known as an Indian party, and similarly to the MAS uh, under Evo Morales, people say machista. And I don't know if you saw, but, you know, during the coup government, the people were saying, well, I'm not a Masista because I'm not an Indian, you know, and like, this is the sort of discourse in Bolivia. It's like, it almost becomes very, you know, it, it, it doesn't almost, it becomes very racialized. Politics becomes very racialized. So uh, Barrientos had this constituency. Um, he was a bit stronger amongst the Cochabamba, the, the Quechua speaking uh, peasantry, just because of his own background, but he still had support. He had a sort of clientelistic relationship with the Highland peasantry as well. And so, um, Civic Action was a rural USAID program. He it really excelled. Um, he really excelled in that, um, and and was able to become kind of the celebrity. So the so so those in the military and also those in society as a whole who wanted to get rid of the MNR, who wanted to get rid of Pasens, sort of saw Barrientos as a tool uh, to 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 bring down Victor Paz, the father of the revolution, to bring down the MNR leader. Uh, because Barrientos showed some independence. Barrientos, uh, you know, first of all, his naming as vice president was against Victor Paz's wishes. He was able to maneuver his way, uh, you know, through his celebrity and through some of his daring deeds uh, to getting the vice presidential nod. And he immediately began to be a vice president who seemed to not be sort of accepting of uh, the re-election of Victor Paz wasn't, you know, he he was sympathetic to the hunger strikers. He was sympath- so he would, you know, he would talk about how he wished uh, Victor Paz would negotiate with the striking miners. He wishes that the Victor Paz would go meet with the students who were blocking the road in front of the university. He would, you know, he, he would con- and he would give speeches to, to to city folk all over the country who were. Down, you know, down with Victor Paz, Barrientos president, and he would say, "Oh, calm down. You know, we're going to talk to Victor Paz. We're going to change him. We're all going to get get along." But really, what he's doing is he's creating a, a, an oppositional narrative again amongst the civilians. So Barrientos' support was really very heavily civilian, um, and that's one of the reasons I think why when I look at the '64 coup and I compare it to other coups, I really sort of uh, reject the idea that coups have to be sort of military-oriented only or, or sort of palace coups. It wasn't really a, you know, a palace coup. Um, uh, however, I will say, uh, that all said, um, Barrientos was part of several secret military um, sort of he, – he held a lot of military – secret military meetings – Lodge meetings, these sort of these sort of weird secret social clubs that aren't supposed to exist in the military hierarchy, uh, and where he and the commander in chief Ovanda, who was very popular amongst uh, the army, he was an army guy, he was an institutionalist. They met with junior officers and they began to think about, yeah, Victor Paz has to go. And so, really, the question was timing. You know, at what point was he going to play the Brutus 
to uh, Julius Caesar? What, at what point was he going to overthrow his boss, right? His his leader, uh, Victor Passus and Soto. And so the military was there trying to get him to go, maybe. Ovando was trying to keep everything together. Um, but all this becomes very clear once uh, Barrientos um, and Ovando, the commander-in-chief, take to the presidential palace and begin to speak. And the the people, the civilians who come to cheer the end of the MNR, uh, they want Barrientos. They don't want Ovando. They don't want the military. They want Barrientos, right? Uh, so that I think that's that's one thing to sort of point out. It, it helps to also explain why the United States was able to come to an agreement with Barrientos uh, and and help him. The CIA helped to fund the PMC, the the the, the political party that became his sort of peasant based party. Uh, and they also helped him to uh, hold elections in 66. And they ensured that enough parties would participate to give it legitimacy, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, almost to the exact percentage that he would get, not by manipulating the numbers, but by manipulating the participants. Um, and and uh, he was a constitutional president. He put on a suit. Um, he became kind of a good friend of Senator Wayne Morse, the sort of human rights guy from Oregon in the, in the, in the U.S. Senate. He became good friends with the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, he became known as this uh, civilian and this reformer, uh, a, a good Christian man who was a progressive and somewhat left of center. That's the way the U.S. government would refer to Barrientos. <laughs> uh, I think that's a good place to uh, to to wrap up the interview with uh, Barrientos in uh, uh, in power. Um, uh, this was a fascinating book. Um, what are so you've alluded to some of the research that you're doing now? Uh, what is your your current uh, book project? So, I'm 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 finishing up a book. I I don't know how much longer I'll, I'll be um, revising it. Maybe maybe a few more months. But um, on the Che Guevara period, I, I look at it kind of as the cycle of Che Guevara in Bolivia, uh, which includes the Barrientos government, its consolidation. Uh, the U.S. role in Bolivia in 56, I'm sorry, in 65 and 66, um, to help understand, uh, uh, first of all, the reasons why the Cubans decided to start a revolution in Bolivia, um, along with the Bolivian Communist Party, and why it failed, in what way it failed, in what way it may have also um, uh, planted some seeds for future Revolutionary politics in Bolivia, uh, all the way through to uh, to to the um, the outbreak of of radical sort of almost Nasserite uh, revolutionary politics in sixty nine and seventy uh, um, to demonstrate kind of the uh, the full cycle of the of Guevarism ends in August of nineteen seventy one is is my argument. There's one last Guevarist guerrilla outbreak uh, in nineteen seventy, which is put down. The military itself kind of declares itself in favor of the political principles of the Guevarists, if not their foreign backers, uh, and they begin to nationalize a lot of um, foreign industry and, and, and expel the United States. becomes quite radical by 1971. Uh, the CIA and the United States get involved. The Nixon administration gets very involved in July, June and July uh, of 1971 in a kind of dress rehearsal of what happens in Chile and the coup that brings to power Hugo Banzer is kind of the end of, of what I refer to as the, as the ciclo Guevarista or the Guevarist cycle in Bolivia, 65 to 71. So that's, that's monograph number two, which uh, it's a kind of a labor of love. I've been working on it the whole time, even when I was working on the first book, but I knew that if you're going to deal with a character of the historical weight of like Che Guevara, there's a lot of passion involved in that on every side. So I wanted to take my time on this particular project. 
Okay. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, this was a fascinating conversation and a great book. Um, thank you very much, Thomas Field. Have a nice day. Thank you, Jeff. It's my pleasure.